Well, we've come to the main message portion of our service now, and we're going to open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. We'll spend all of our time there. The title of the message is Enter Boldly. Enter Boldly. And I'm going to start off by talking about something totally different. Well, it's not totally different, but it's, you'll see how it'll fit in. We're going to talk about Fort Knox. You know, Fort Knox is not too far away from us here, just down in the next state of Kentucky, down south, as you pass through Cincinnati. We used to live in Kentucky for six years. And uh, I think most of you know all about Fort Knox. That's where we keep all of the gold, or a lot of the gold, that we, we own as a country. And the first thing that you run into at Fort Knox, Kentucky, as I said, home to about half of the U.S. gold reserves, is the st steel fence. Make it over that fence and you must deal with who knows how many landmines in the surrounding field and apparently machine guns that are laser activated. There are expert marksmen on each corner of the building, which is made of concrete reinforced steel that is supposedly bombproof. The 20-ton vault where the gold is placed has a door that is 21 inches thick. So if any of you are thinking of going down there to, to get a sample, uh, this is what you're going to run into. Only one president, Franklin Roosevelt, has ever been inside Fort Knox, and other VIP visitors are rarely allowed inside. And inside, because of the secrecy of the building, the exact contents are uncertain. But the feature presentation is 190 billion dollars in 27 inch gold bars. The vault has also been temporary home to originals of the US Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Magna Carta, and the Golden Holy Crown of Hungary from the 10th century. If you make it inside by some miracle and fill your pockets with gold bars, you are still on the Fort Knox Army Base, home to roughly 40,000 people, many of them armed, who won't be happy that you broke in. Now, I want to draw a comparison or an analogy to the temple in Jerusalem that stood during Jesus' time here on earth. When we read about the temple and the Holy of Holies, we have a kind of ancient sacred version of Fort Knox. The outer courts of the temple were the only place that the public was allowed. There they brought their sacrifices to the priests. The next chamber was the holy place where only the priests were allowed to represent the people before God. Keep in mind here that the priests, like the elite guards of Fort Knox, were not just anyone. They had to be a certain tribe of Israel, the Levites who had been doing the ministry work for centuries, from generation to generation. They passed on this vocation to the next generation with certain clothing to wear, language to speak, and rituals that went with it. The priest tribe, like 
Judah, the king tribe, had very specific duties in the life of Israel. Also like Fort Knox, much of the nation's gold was held at the temple in Jerusalem. A huge solid gold menorah provided the only light in the holy place. No doubt worth a fortune in today's money. And beyond this room was the Holy of Holies, separated by an ornate curtain that was about three and a half inches thick. The high priest, after months of preparation, went into the Holy of Holies only once a year into the presence of God on behalf of the, of the people. For anyone but the right person at exactly the right time to go into this chamber was a bit like jumping the fence and running toward Fort Knox. You're not just in trouble, you're probably going to be dead. The temple was called the navel or the belly button of the world, meant to be the place where the life of God connected with earth. The power and strength and glory of God entered the world right at this point, which made it sacred and even dangerous. It is this small square of heavily guarded, mysterious space that becomes a central image to the author of Hebrews. Okay, let's now look at Hebrews chapter 10. And we'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open our Bibles now in the book of Hebrews, we know you have a message for us, a message that applies directly to us from back in the day of, of Jesus walking on this earth. So help us to understand, help us to, to know and to learn how it applies to us directly. So we thank you, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. So in Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 11, because it talks a little bit about the temple and what went on there on a daily basis. It says, day after day, every priest from the tribe of Levi stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away our sins. But when this priest, Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Now, I want you to see two groups, Jesus Christ versus the Levitical priesthood. It's interesting to note that one group, the Levites, stood during their duties daily at the, at the uh, temple offering sacrifices and doing whatever else they were doing, they were continually standing. Now, I don't know for sure, but I would be, wouldn't be surprised if they had a rule there that it was improper and wrong for priests to sit while on duty. I think they had to stand on a continual basis. I kind of remember a coach, you know, that I had in uh, college playing soccer. When you were at practice, you never sat down. <laughs> You had to stay on your feet and stay moving all the time. And if any of the players on the team sat down on the field, the coach would go up to them very quickly and say, are you tired? <laughs> and send them home for the day. You know, they weren't allowed to practice because when you come out for a sport and you're practicing on the field, you don't sit down. Don't ever let the coach see you sit down. And I think that was kind of the way it was with the priests at the temple. They were always standing while doing their duty. But Jesus, it says here, sat down. 
You know, the Levites' work was, was unending. Every day they were there at the temple offering sacrifices because it was a continual process, because the people continued to sin. So the way the Old Testament uh, priesthood was set up and the sacrificial system is you're offering animal sacrifices for your sins was a continual thing. But Jesus, it says here, when he had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, which implies that his work is finished. His work is not a continual thing that has to take place every day, like it was with the Levites. He, Jesus, is now at rest. The work of sacrifice in Israel had to be done over and over to cover the new sins, even the sins of the priest himself because he continued to sin as well. By contrast, Jesus, as the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice, covered all sins forever. So this is a great comfort to us as we look at our lives. There was never a moment when Jesus paused to say, oh, sorry, I can't cover that sin that you just committed because it was too big or too ugly. <laughs> Sometimes we think that that's the case. We wonder if God can ever forgive that or if he ever has forgiven it. Well, this scripture encourages us and proves to us that it is covered by his sacrifice on the cross. Amen. We know that the work of redemption by Jesus Christ was accomplished successfully and decisively. And that's why we say our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Because his sacrifice was that important, this was the Son of God dying on our behalf, it covers all sins. Amen. So we should never doubt or think, you know what, I, I'm not sure God forgave that, or, or I'm not sure that you know, God could cover that one. I think it was just too bad and too awful. Don't fret. They're all covered by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and never doubt it. And if you start doubting it, that's Satan trying to whisper in your ear to put doubts in your mind about your salvation. Jesus' work of redemption was done and is done, finally, finalized. And that's why he sat down. Just as his father rested on the seventh day because the work of creation was complete, so Jesus completed his earthly work and sat down. Let me read that again, verse 12. But when this priest, referring to Jesus, as opposed to the Levites, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. His work is done. And that encourages us because we're reminded and we're reassured that every sin, and I don't know, we all kind of look at our own per personal sins as the worst. Every sin is forgiven. So let's read on a little bit now. So that's the first lesson we learned from this passage. The comparison of who is standing and who has sat down. The Levites continued to stand during their years of service at the temple because their work was ongoing. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was so important, so all-compassing that he sat down. His work is done on our behalf. We'll read on a little further now. I'm going to pick it up at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, 
Since we have confidence, and that's the word I'm going to focus on, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that we don't have the Levitical priesthood anymore. <laughs> Not that I have anything against them, but it was just the system. It was the old covenant that required continual and ongoing sacrifices. I'm so thankful that our high priest is different. He's not a man. He is the Son of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And because of his sacrifice, because of it being so all-encompassing when it comes to sin, this scripture says here in verse 19, Therefore, because of all that that we just read about, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, I want to focus on this word confidence. This word in the Greek for confidence meant much more than simply boldness. You know, you're bold sometimes. You walk into a room with confidence because you feel sure of yourself. This word for confidence here means much more than simply boldness. The connotation is wider and speaks about your place in society. It's the word for speaking in the assembly back in those days. Now, in the Greek uh, society, the assembly was the center of the Greek society. It's where all of the people who had something to say would come. People who had authority, people who had responsibility, they would come to the assembly. It meant to speak frankly and truthfully with your head held high. So this word for confidence had a connotation to a person who would come into the Greek assembly and they wouldn't let just anybody come into that assembly. You had to be a pretty special person, a person who was respected, who, a person whose words meant something. And that person would speak frankly and truthfully with their head held high, and their word would be respected by those who heard it. Amen. Only certain privileged members of society could speak with this kind of honor. It meant that they weren't slaves and their words had weight. Her, their words carried weight. A person outside of elite circles wouldn't dare speak with this confidence in the wrong setting. And here the writer of Hebrews says that that's what we have in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of confidence that we have, where we can hold our head up high because we know who we are, beloved sons and daughters of God himself through Jesus Christ. Now, if the Holy of Holies were somehow here today, keep in mind that it tended to be kind of a frightening place in some ways, a lethal place, because only certain people could enter into that area. Now, you've all seen uh, kind of schematics or, or maps of the temple in Jerusalem. You know, there was a building that was split into two. 
you know, the main part of the building was called the holy place, and that's where the, the priests came in daily to do their job. Another room behind, as it said a little bit earlier, a three and a half inch wide curtain, or thick curtain, only the high priest could go back there one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement, and only he himself could go in there. Now, outside of that building, there were courtyards. You know, the, the furthest courtyard out from the building was called the Court of the Gentiles. That's how far they could come. If you weren't a Jew, you could only come to this outside barrier area. You couldn't go inside that. And if you did, you could be put to death. Now, there's a story in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21, where they thought at one point in time that the Apostle Paul had brought a Gentile beyond that area. This man's name was Trophimus. And uh, they were out to kill Paul, even though he didn't do it. They accused him of bringing a Gentile inside the court of the Gentiles to the next area. And uh, it was only because the Romans intervened that Paul was not put to death for doing that. So that's why I said the temple area could be a lethal place. It could be a place where you could be put to death if you broke any of the rules. So there was a, a they called the court of the Gentiles, was the furthest away from the building. Then as you got closer, there was what they called the court of women. So women, if you were Jewish women, you could come one step further, closer to the temple, uh, and only that far, if you were a woman. Then inside of that was called the, the court of Israel, or the court of men. They could come even closer. And then, uh, now, keep in mind that this separation between men and women was not in the Bible. That was something that the Jews thought up during the, the uh, second temple period, the temple of Herod, that he improved on, okay, uh, around Jesus' time. So God never intended, and Jesus never intended for men and women to be separated like that, where women can only come so far and then men could come a few steps further. That was not in the Bible and that's not of God. God treats us all equally, men and women alike. But as I said, God through Jesus Christ if the temple were there today, we all have that confidence to enter boldly before God. Amen. You know, those separations of, of the olden days are all gone. We have all been called to salvation in Jesus Christ, and God looks at us all equally. So even though, you know, you had to be a certain person back in these days to enter into the Greek assembly, this word that is used here tells us that we should have the confidence, we do have the confidence, that we can enter boldly before God. And we do that in many ways. We do it through prayer. We do it when we come here to worship him. There are no restrictions as to who can come in this building as we worship God. All are welcome. And through Jesus Christ, we have been given the confidence to come before him. And we don't have to come crawling in as a sinner. We can walk in with our heads held high because of Jesus Christ and what we've been given through his sacrifice on the cross. All of the sacrifices, all of the rituals and practices of centuries of Israelite life were only a shadow of the reality to come. 
Now that the reality, Jesus himself has come and done his work, we have his royal confidence. Do we live in the light of this confidence? Do we live with the boldness of knowing we're loved and welcomed by the God who made the universe? We should. We should feel that way. And it takes a while, I guess, for that to, to come to dwell in you. Because, uh, you know, we realize that we're all sinners. We realize that we all stumble and fall from time to time. But in spite of that, and because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God wants us to enjoy this boldness that he has given us, this confidence. And it's not of our own doing. It's not because any of us are anything special. We're all equal before God. We're all equal at the foot of the cross, okay? So you don't have to be a special person to come to worship God. You don't have to be a special person <clears throat> to lift up prayers to God. He hears each and every one of us. Let's look now at verse 24 of the same chapter, Hebrews 10, verse 24. We'll read on a little bit further. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. That's the next word I want to look at, encourage. Part of what we do here at church and part of what we do as the body of Christ is to encourage one another. This is very important. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, who knows what the day is? What would you guess? People are whispering. <laughs> the return of Jesus, okay? Let us all encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I'd like to read you a quote from a philosopher. I had to read one of his books in school. His name is Albert Camus, C-A-M-U-S. And he was talking a little bit about encouragement, encouraging one another. This is what he said. Don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Just walk beside me and be my friend. Let me read that again. Don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Just walk beside me and be my friend. And you know what? This is what we've been called to do as fellow members of the church. This is how we work together. Walk beside me, encourage me, and let me encourage you. You know, in the church over the years, in this congregation over the years, there's been a lot of encouragement. A lot of encouragement that has been shared one to another. And that is so important in each of our personal lives. We need to know that we don't walk through this Christian life alone. God never intended it to be that way. That's why he created the church. And I was reading an article just the other day talking about how because of COVID, a lot of churches have shrunk in size and a lot of people have just gotten used to and they've become comfortable with watching the video of the church service if they do that much, just kind of watching it at home in their pajamas in bed and they feel much more comfortable, you know, hearing the sermon that way. But that's not 
what God called the church to be. I mean, that can be a helpful thing in the case of an emergency or if somebody's sick or can't get to church somehow. And you know, we're able every week when we post our uh, sermon online, we post the video online, and we kind of see how many people tune in to watch it. And there are a number of people who watch the sermon pretty religiously, no pun intended, who don't come to our church service. And I think, well, you know, hopefully that's a blessing for them to hear that sermon and to see the video of it. But that's not really the way God intended church to be. Because when you're laying in, in your bed at home in your pajamas, you know, drinking your coffee and watching the, the uh, you know, whether the, the sermon is live or whether it's recorded and you watch it later, how are you able to encourage anybody? <laughs> you know, you're comfortable, you know, in your easy chair at home, but that's not what God has called the church to be. We don't become the new people of God, the royal family who walks with royal confidence on our own. We become this new people, we come to it together, walking beside each other as equals and encouraging each other toward Jesus Christ. There is not, as the disciples sometimes ask for, a privileged seat above others. You know, they ask Jesus, well, who's going to sit on your right hand? Who's going to sit on your left hand? And Jesus didn't give, you know, anybody that privilege. He said, that's up to my Father in heaven. So we don't come to church to see who's going to be the privileged one and who can sit in the privileged seat. I hate to say it, but next week when we come here and have combined services, your seat might be taken and you might have to move to another position. I'm sure that's going to be the case with us. And that's fine because there's no privileged seats in here. You may be used to a particular seat. It may fit your rear end nice, but be ready to change. Be ready to move around. So as I said, there's not a privileged seat above all others, but a new equality that demolishes the separations in society. So you see, the church is all about removing things that divide people. We talk about racial division in our country. We talk about the, the haves and the have-nots and you know all different things that can divide us. Church is intended to bring us all together and to encourage one another as equal sons and daughters of God, beloved sons and daughters of God. That's the purpose of why we're here. And like I said, that's what we should always seek to do. We don't come to church in a selfish attitude. I remember over the years, you know, somebody telling me, well, you know, Pastor John, I don't know if I'm going to be coming to church anymore because when I come to church, I don't feel that I'm getting the things that I, I need to get. I, I'm not being fed. I'm not, be, you know, not this, not that. I said, did you ever think about what you come to church to bring for the benefit of others? Why are you always just thinking about yourself? I said, you know, if you come to church with the goal of encouraging others, serving others, sharing with others, you're going to find that your personal needs are taken care of by God. Amen. So you can't have the wrong outlook just thinking about what you're going to get from coming to church. We come to church for what we're going to give, what we're going to share, how we're going to encourage people. So no longer, as we saw from the example of the temple, 
No longer is it just one priest from one tribe going into one room on one day out of the year. But you see, under the terms of the new covenant and the church, it's about all of us coming together in the presence of God in Jesus Christ. God gave us the most beautiful gift he could, he could give us after his son, Jesus Christ. He gave us each other. And that is a beautiful gift from God. Never take it for granted. There is no Christian life without the Christian family. And that's what our last point brings in. We are able to encourage one another. When we come to church together, when we take communion together, you know, as we come down here together, form a line and all come past the table, we're encouraging one another. Amen. That we truly believe in this, okay? We believe that this bread and uh, fruit of the vine is the body and blood of Christ. And when we come down here and take it together, we're encouraging one another. We're building up one another's faith as we should. To know Christ is to know each other and to be bound together as a family. So what are the three lessons that we learned here? We saw that one group remained standing and one person sat down. The, Le the Levitical priesthood and the whole sacrifice system was never meant to take away sins. It couldn't do it. But it was a ritual that they went through because it was a shadow of what was to come. And that whole sacrificial system and all the work that the Levitical priests did and all the sacrifices, the poor animals that had to suffer and die because of sin. It was only a shadow of one who would come later and offer such a profound and significant sacrifice that he was able to take his seat because the work was done, completed. The second lesson we learned was from the word confidence, that we, because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us, can hold our heads high because we are royal sons and daughters of God and the riches of heaven are ours. We inherit them through Jesus Christ, confidence. And then the final word, encourage, the kingdom of God is already, we represent the kingdom of God here, but it's still not yet. We live in that period of time where we're enjoying a portion of it, a small portion of it now in the church as the body of Christ. The kingdom of God exists here in our lives, but it's still coming in all its fullness with the return of Jesus Christ. And we're to support each other along the way. All the more as we see the day drawing near. Because don't forget, when that day takes place, that's when the kingdom in all its fullness comes to earth. Amen. We live in the time between the times. We wait for the end, knowing this current world is not our home. The closest we get this side of things is experiencing the presence of Christ together as a family. And that, even compared to Fort Knox, is riches indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this lesson from the book of Hebrews. Always help us to understand, Father, that Jesus Christ's sacrifice for our sins is complete. Every sin that we have ever committed or ever will commit is now forgiven by his blood. Help us to have that confidence that we can come before you at any time forgiven of sins, 
We have nothing to be ashamed of. We realize that you're changing us, so we want to get sin out of our lives. We should never take sin for granted, but we realize that the, the price has been paid. The penalty has been paid by the blood of Jesus, so we can always come before you. And also help us to encourage one another, Father. Encourage us with the truth and help us to share that sense of encouragement with one another. Help us walk beside one another. None of us is any better than anybody else, but help us to walk beside one another and be the strength for other people because we're all headed for the same goal. We're all headed for eternal life with you, which has been assured us through Jesus Christ. So help us to encourage one another along the path. So thank you, Father, for this church, for these wonderful members that we have, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we will enjoy for all eternity. Thank you, Father. We pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen.